Ephesians chapter 2, if you haven't figured it out, we were reading through the book of Galatians. Earlier this month, uh, and last month actually, and I took a detour because I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, one of my favorite chapters um, in this epistle and other epistles as well. In verse 17, that's where I'm going to concentrate in chapter 2 and verse 17. Let me just read that. Here's the New King James. And he, if you have uh, your Bible open, you're looking down at it. He is capitalized in many translations. And he came and preached peace to you, you Ephesians, who were far off. Uh, I take it to be Ephesian Gentiles and to those who were near and I take that to be Jews, either in Ephesus or elsewhere. And if you notice in the context reading, he refers back to verse 16, and that he, Christ, might reconcile them both, Jews and Greeks, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, and he came and preached. So we have the death of Christ, and then we have the proclamation of Christ by Christ, after his death, and we assume after his resurrection, I'll get some more of the details and the context for you. But in, if we go over to the book of Acts, just to set the historical context of this epistle to the Ephesians, it actually begins in Acts chapter 19. Notice verse 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them. So Paul's at Ephesus now, and this is one of Paul's missionary journeys. If you look at the map at the back of your uh, Bibles, there's usually maps of the missionary journeys of Paul. There are three of them. He goes from uh, Syrian Antioch, and he usually goes north and west toward Europe. He ended up in, in, in Europe. He ended up in Rome. Uh, he goes through modern-day Turkey. That's where Ephesus was. He ends up in Corinth and Athens and, and, and Rome. So he has these missionary journeys and various places. If you look at verses 8 through 10, we read, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, he spoke but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. We have verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Some of you know the rest of the chapter. There was a riot that came about because of the conversion of some people in that ancient city. That's the background. Paul is on his missionary journeys. He has Luke with him. Luke recorded the book of Acts. And uh, six or so later, years later, the apostle writes from Rome in prison what we call the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. So this is about six years after Paul went to Ephesus. He's writing from prison. Uh, and notice, if you notice the prison epistles, he never says, get me out of here. Okay, come and break me out or anything like that. He endured, you know, the unrighteous sufferings. He did get out. But anyway, 
From there, he wrote Ephesians and uh, other words as uh, epistles as well. And what this epistle is in one sense, it's the divine interpretation or explanation of God's work in the souls of the Ephesians, okay? It is God speaking through the apostle, through the written, what we call epistle to the Ephesians, explaining to the Ephesians what transpired, what happened to them. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together in Christ. So there were Jews and Greeks that were hearing the gospel when Paul was there. And six years later, when he writes this epistle, we we should assume, and I think rightly so, that there are Jews and Greeks still there now in one body. And now what they get is an apostolic or a divine explanation of how in the world that Jews and Greeks, some of the Greeks would have been rank pagans. Ephesus was very well known for the worship of Diana, Okay, there's a bunch of idolatry and prostitution and all sorts of stuff going on there, which really pitted the Jews against the Greeks. Uh, but now they're together every Lord's Day hearing their pastor preach sermons. And so Paul from prison says, by the way, here's what happened. Now, in the introduction in his letter in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm praying about three things. And the third thing he prays, tells them he's praying for is found in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, and what is, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, uh, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So he says, I want you to know something. I want you to know the exceeding greatness of the power of God that's been executed uh, and it terminates in your own soul. It's the same power executed in the resurrection of Christ. It's the same power, divine power, executed in the exaltation of Christ. It's the same power uh, executed in the subduing of all things under his feet. Uh, And you being dead in your trespasses and sin, the same power that raised Christ from the dead was aimed at your soul. He made you alive together. With Christ. So he's talking about this power of God. Now it's interesting in Ephesus, there's all kinds of power, magic, witchcraft in the first century, which by the way, by the mid second century was demolished. Not because somebody blew, blew it up with bombs. Well, God did with a gospel bomb. It changed the culture and Ephesus went from a, from a leading, really pagan, idolatrous community, and a large one, 250,000 people or so, probably the third largest city in the ancient Roman uh, Empire, uh, to not being the center of witchcraft like it used to. So this power motif that he's talking about, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward us who believe, and then he illustrates it first in the resurrection, second in the exaltation, the ascension, third, in the current session of our Savior. And then he says, and you, then he illustrates it in the Christians as individuals. You were like this, dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you alive together. And then toward the end of chapter 2, toward the middle of chapter 2, he illustrates it not only individually in people, but he he illustrates it corporately in the bringing together of the Jews and and the Gentiles into one body in this local church, in Ephesus. So if you were sitting 
there in Ephesus uh, 2,000 years ago or so, and uh, six years after the gospel came in, um, somebody brings a letter from the apostle from the from prison, and there would be Jews and Greeks. There would be former gross idolaters, publicly shameful Id- acts of idolatry in the congregation. You would be hearing these words together, and there would be an explanation of what happened to you. You know, you didn't cause this to be God. God did it. But if we look primarily at verses 17 and 18, uh, that's kind of the context I want to look at. Um, well, verse 17 is, is the verse I want to look at, but I already mentioned verses 16, 14 through 16. Notice these words, for he himself is our peace, chapter 2, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh... The enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, there's his death, thereby putting to death the enmity. And then it says, and he came and preached peace to you. So we have the purchase of peace, his death, reconciliation, then we have the proclamation of peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Then if you keep going, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That is uh, our experiential um, communion with God is through Christ by the Spirit and with the Father. There's a Trinitarian hint there. So it's very interesting. He's teaching these Ephesians what happened to them. He tells them in chapter 2, verses 1 and follow. By the way, we usually take take chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, for the doctrine of total depravity, and we try to convince unbelievers, this is you. In context, Paul says, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking about the believers when they were unbelievers, Right? Okay, so maybe you want to qualify how you try to convince somebody that they're they're totally depraved and say, look, this is what I was like before the light came to me. I was this, I was this, I was this, I was this. And that's what he's telling them. You were like this, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, uh, by grace you've been saved, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated with him, us with him in the heavenly places. And also he's explaining all that to him, and he does the corporate thing. The Jews and the Greeks, the idolaters and the, uh, the people of God, the Jews, are now together in one body. How did this happen? God sends the mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he lives and dies for sinners, and he's raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and then the proclamation of his name goes, starts in Jerusalem and goes out from there. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 17. And I want you to notice the words, and he came, and he came, or literally, having come. Now, the one who has come to the Ephesians, because that's who he was writing to, 
refers back to the one who died for Jews and Gentiles in verses 14 and 15, uh, 15 and 14 through 16. So Paul is referring to a coming of Christ to do something. Okay, Christians speak of the, the first coming and the second coming. This is somewhere in between. Okay, the first coming is the incarnation, sufferings, and glory, resurrection, ascension, and current session of our Lord. The second coming is for judgment in the eternal state. But this is another coming, because he says, and he came. So that's my first observation. Notice, secondly, what Christ did when he came. In the coming being referred to by Paul here, Christ came, and what did he do? Preached peace. Okay, peace is assumed to have been purchased already. That's verses 14 through 16, the purchase of peace. This is the proclamation of peace. This is the proclamation of peace after the purchase of peace by the same one who purchased the peace. The proclaimer and the purchaser of peace is the same person. It is our Lord Jesus Christ, wandering a state of humiliation The other, I'm going to argue, upon his exaltation and his state of exaltation. The preaching of peace presupposes the purchase of peace in this passage. This preaching by Christ occurred after his death, I'm going to argue, after his resurrection and after his ascension. I think the next point makes that clear. Notice thirdly, who Christ preached to you too. Now, I'm going to read it very carefully. And he came... And preached peace to you. Who is the you referring to here? The original recipients of the letter, right? The Ephesians. Christ came and preached peace to you, Ephesians. Doesn't say to the Samaritans. Says to you, Ephesians. Uh, Quoting somebody else. Having come to Ephesus, Christ preached to you, Ephesians. But it was Paul who preached in Ephesus, was it not? It was for over two years. The church was born most likely through his labors. There were disciples there, but the church was probably formed through the labors of the Apostle Paul over a two-year period. This says Christ purchased peace, 14 through 16, and proclaimed peace, verse 17, to the Ephesians, during the time of Paul's stay there in Acts 19. So if you know the book of Acts, the ascension into heaven already took place. And if you go 19 chapters over, according to this, Paul says, taking the book of Acts, going 19 chapters over, the one who purchased peace and ascended as the prince of peace is now proclaiming peace to the Ephesians. 19 chapters later, uh, how, how many years? 20 or 30 years later. Now, that should sound weird. Jesus? I get that Jesus living on the earth and dying for sins and, and rising from the dead. But you're saying after he ascended, he sat down in this royal uh, reign from a uh, heavenly throne, and then he preached to the Ephesians? How did he do that? Remember, at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the, of the age. Remember he said that? And then he ascended to heaven. It's like, 
How could you, you just, is that a lie? Did Jesus lie? Or is there a way in which our two-natured redeemer can be locally present in heaven according to his human nature and yet divinely present on earth in a unique way with his disciples? And the answer is yes. So he preached to you the ones far off and the ones near, that is, the ones far off refers to Gentiles and the ones near refers to Jews. This actually starts in the Old Testament, this Jew-Gentile together hearing the, the, the message about the mediator, the servant of the Lord according to the prophets. This Jew-Gentile thing actually starts in the Old Testament, and that's my fourth observation. Notice that Paul is thinking of the fulfillment of Isaiah 57, verse 19, in this text. Isaiah, I'll turn there and read it. Isaiah 57, 19. We don't have time, or I'm not going to take the time, because it would take me too long, uh, to go through the wider context. But listen to these words in verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips... Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now, this is uh, the latter part of the book of Isaiah. You've probably heard this before. Isaiah 40 through 66 is very messianic, is very servant of the Lord oriented, is very... Uh, eschatologically conditioned, that is, it's looking toward the future sometime on the earth when this Jewish Messiah, this Jewish servant of the Lord comes and is present and is ministering and is caught up before the ancient of days, Daniel chapter 7, and is given a kingdom and peoples and uh, of both Jews and Greeks. It's most likely, Paul has this passage, not just this one verse, but it's wider context as well in mind. The wider context of Isaiah 57, by the way, involves the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, bringing peace to Jews and Greeks. In Ephesians 2.13, Paul has themes from Isaiah in mind. He uses the words far off. That's from Isaiah. We can see this elsewhere, for instance, in the New Testament. Watch this in Acts 26.23. Acts 26.23, another uh Allusion, at least, to the Isaiah passage. Acts 26, 23. I'm going to read the, a larger section later. But Acts 26, 23. This is Paul. He says, um, I'm, I'm, my ministry is just what Moses and the prophet said should take place. That the Christ would suffer. Okay, there's the purchase of peace. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. There's the recognition, the divine recognition that he purchased peace for us. His work was finished, the resurrection, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Okay, so there we have death, resurrection, and then some sort of messianic proclamation by the having been dead, having been resurrected Savior to both Jewish people and Gentiles. Now you read the Gospels and you read the early chapter of Acts. Jesus didn't go to the Jews, or the Gentiles, excuse me. There were Gentiles every once in a while that were around him, but it's not like he had a mission out to the Gentile world. That awaited his apostles. But there, Paul says, similar language 
from Ephesians 2 and Isaiah 57 that he, Jesus, died, rose from the dead, and then proclaimed, preached to to Jews and Greeks. So Paul views the preaching of Christ to the Ephesians as an indication that the days of Isaiah's prophecy have come upon us. These Ephesians were actually a fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy. Again, if we're sitting back there and I'm doing the preaching, I'm going, do you realize you guys are, you're, you're a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The prophets prophesied that the Christ was to come and suffer and then enter into his glory. And part of his glory is to have some from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation to bow the knee before the judgment, to bow the knee, at least the knee of the soul, to him and believe upon him. And you are fruits of that labors. And I want you to remember back, six years later, you know, Paul's writing, I want you to remember back at you being dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. How did he do that? He came and he preached peace to you. The ascended Lord Jesus from the right hand of the majesty on high somehow, some way, is able to execute a prophetic ministry through the ministry of his servants that gets into the mind and the souls of people and turns them inside out. So after Christ left the earth, when Paul and others preached the word of God to the Ephesians, Paul says that it was Christ the exalted Redeemer, who was preaching peace to their souls in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, let's go fast forward to our day. If you are a believer in Christ, Jew or Gentile, you are a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Somehow, some way, the gospel came to your ears, and it wasn't just you being smarter than somebody other, somebody else, or you being more religiously inclined than somebody else. It was this internal work of God that caused you to hear and see things and understand things and believe them. So here we have a proclamation of peace by the one who purchased peace, subsequent to the purchase subsequent to the death and resurrection, subsequent to his exaltation, or during his exalted status, he is now proclaiming peace through ordained ministers to the souls of lost people. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you have the New King James Version, here's what it reads in verses 20 and 21. But you, Ephesians, have not so learned Christ in such a way as to just live a godless life, Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him, all the translations don't translate it that way, but they should. I like this translation. If indeed you have heard him. You hear, you see that? Huh. Jesus never went to Ephesus when he was on the earth, but he came and preached peace to you by virtue of this this exalted prophetic ministry that he's able to extend from heaven to earth through ordained preachers. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him in preaching, we hear Christ in preaching, we are taught by Christ as the truth is in Jesus. Our Lord actually confirms this interpretation for us 
while he was on the earth. In John chapter 10, for example, verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Remember, the the fold he's talking about is the Jewish believers. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They haven't come into the fold yet, but they will. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Do Do you see what's happening there? This is like a Jesus' prophetic word about what's going to transpire once he dies uh, and is raised from the dead. He's going to have others who are going to come in to one fold. He's going to have non-Jews, Gentiles, some from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. He also does the same thing or a similar thing in verse 40, and he went away again and beyond the Jordan to that place where John was baptized, not the verse it doesn't matter what the verse is, but you heard the Lord Jesus setting up what took place in the, in the Ephesians uh, in John 10, 16. I want to go back to Acts 26. I went there very uh, briefly, but it's a very important passage. It's toward the end of the book of Acts. It's toward the end of Paul's ministry. In Acts chapter 26, he's recounting uh, before a king. A king what was happening, what his ministry was all about. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, this is verse 20, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, you remember, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek in Romans chapter 1. That's actually a motif borrowed from the Old Testament that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Okay, so I'm not doing anything other than what they said would come. That... The Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and the Christ would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That's Ephesians chapter 2, I think. That's uh, Isaiah chapter 57. There's one other place in Paul's writing that he has this post-resurrection proclamation, post-ascension proclamation by the incarnate Son of God from heaven, getting into the souls of people on earth. And that comes in Romans chapter 10. It's verse uh, verse 14, com- trying to confirm from other texts that my understanding of Ephesians 2.17 is right. Um, Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe, now it says, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Okay, so he's talking about officially sent preachers of the word. That's the only kind of preachers there should be. Churches ought to identify preachers and teachers. Um, But notice verse 14. It's a very interesting uh, construction. How then shall they call on him? Now, we could say this. Whom they, they have not believed in. And how shall they believe him? 
of whom they have not heard? Or how, excuse me, how shall they believe him whom they have not heard? That's the way it should go. That's, it can be translated that way. How shall they believe him, Christ, whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, so you have a preacher. He's sent, according to the next verse. Then he preaches. And during his preaching, what happens? Some sinners are enabled to hear him. Here's uh, uh, John Murray on that. A striking feature of this clause is that Christ is represented as being heard in the gospel when proclaimed by the sent messengers. The implication is that Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. In the last clause of verse 14, the apostle is thinking of the institution which is the ordinary and most effectual means of propagating the gospel, namely the official preaching of the word by those appointed to the task. So you have a church. It identifies a preacher, and they commission this guy to preach, either in their own congregation or to others as well, or out on the streets or whatever. So that's a sent one, identified as a gifted and graced, to do a certain task, preach. And during the preaching, what happens, and you pray that it happens more times than not, Christ uses the medium of a preacher's preaching to speak to the minds and hearts of sinners. It's a wonderful um, text. I remember being at a conference 2011 at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church, and there are like five guys assigned messages. One was the means of grace uh, as an overarching concept. Dr. Renahan, I think, gave that one. One was, the next one was preaching as the means of grace. Um, And when I got up there, I had the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. I said, you know, in one sense, mine's the most difficult. There was more ink spilled over the Lord's Supper at the time of the Reformation than there was over justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We usually don't think that way, but that's really the case. I said that preaching on the preaching as the means of grace is a no-brainer. And I said that looking at the guy who preached the message on it. Everyone, all the preachers there, wanted to preach that message. Why? Because when you put all these verses and texts together, and there are other ones, you realize that preaching's just not some dude up there, at least it shouldn't be, sharing his, you know, sharing his, his heart with you. Um, I remember hearing a lecture one time uh, given to ministers, and the man said, don't get up there and say, I just, I haven't come to preach to you this Lord's Day, I've just came to share my heart. He says, your heart is black and dirty to the bottom. Who wants to hear about your heart? Preach Christ, preach the word of God. Why? Because it's a means through which the ascended Lord Jesus brings the benefits of Christ to his people. So we have some lessons we've learned from this, hopefully, or we can learn from this. One is this. We learned something about the prophet Isaiah, the Lord Jesus, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Kind of hard to see it, but once you get the near and far-off language from from Ephesians 2, and you ask yourself, in terms of the whole Bible, Genesis through Revelation, Ephesus, Ephesians is over here. Where does that language begin? You have to go back. It's in the book of Acts. 
And the reference is most likely all the way back to Isaiah 57. Isaiah is a prophet prophesying about the days of of the Messiah. Therefore, this near and far off language is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And why is Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled in the Ephesians? Because the, the one who proclaimed peace to them purchased peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived and died, rose, ascended, and proclaimed the gospel. And these people heard it with power in their own hearts. A second thing we learn here, the second thing we learn here is that preaching is a means through which Christ changes souls on the earth. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ. And he purchased peace, verses 14 through 16, and then he proclaimed the peace to you when he was in heaven, bringing the benefits of his purchase of peace to your soul with power. So that preaching is a means of grace, a means or delivery system through which the things that Jesus secured and purchased for sinners get to the soul's of those that he came to save. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Or there's Colossians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul's philosophy, theory of preaching is not just merely horizontal stuff, I've come to share my heart with you, uh, but some sort of messenger through whom top-down blessings come by virtue of blessings purchased. They're now being proclaimed by a human instrument, but it's through the human instrumentality and the truth contained in what the human instrument proclaims that the Lord Jesus from heaven uh, tinkers uh, with our souls here on the earth. So preaching is a means through which Christ changes souls on the earth. Just think about that for a minute. If that's the biblical theology of preaching, do you need your soul changed ever? Yeah. When is the, for the church, the ordained day of preaching? It's the Lord's day. Should kind of maybe be a little important, right? Even when the sermons aren't so good. Third, we learn here, Because you know what? Even through a stumbling, mumbling, bumbling guy like me, Jesus can take something and plant it into your soul. And you go, I have no idea what Barcelos was trying to say, but I do know this much. When he went to that verse, that's what I needed. You remember Spurgeon got converted through that stupid Methodist preacher, he called him. And all the guy could say is, "Uh, look, that's about it. Look to Christ. Look. Have you looked? And just kept going. We learn here, third, that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God to the degree that the preaching is in line with the intent of Scripture. 
Okay, did you hear that qualification? To the degree the preaching of the word of God is the word of God to the degree that the preaching is in line with the intent of scripture. So it would be wrong for me to say preaching the word of God is the word of God full stop no matter what I say, right? I'm not God. The preacher's job is to get the divine intent of the words and to proclaim those words. And to the degree that the preacher preaches in line with the divine intent of Scripture, to that degree, we should pray God's blessing upon it. There's a famous statement probably written by Henry Heinrich Bullinger in the 1560s. I already uh, quoted it. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The first time I heard that, I thought, what? Come on. Well, you know why he says that stuff? He came and preached peace to you, but who, who was the human instrument through whom the Ephesians heard the preaching, Paul and others? So Christ can come through subsequent human agents. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. If this is the case, and I think it is, then a few things follow. Number one, and I'm quoting somebody else on this. I'm just going to read this. If the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, then we who lead churches should make sure that preaching has the prominent central place among the means God has given to make his nature and will known to, and to achieve his purposes for the church. Right? If preaching is that, it better be, it better be central. Other means have their place. Prayer has its place. Baptism certainly has its place. Um, the Lord's Supper has its place. Church discipline has its place. Uh, but we don't displace the centrality of the proclamation of the word of God for these other important means. Second, he says, if the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, then those who preach should spare no effort to make sure that what they preach conforms to the content, tone, and purposes of the written word of God. That is, the sermon should be faithful not only to the passage being expounded, but also to the immediate and extended literary context in which it is found. See what he just said? The preacher better, he needs to work his butt off, uh, rear off, strike that, tail end off, to make sure he's getting it in the text and then in its the larger context, and then I think he was even saying larger scriptural context. I tried to do that. I tried to say, where do these words come from? Paul didn't make them up. They're in Acts chapter 16, far off, and those who are near, peace. It comes from God through Isaiah way back in the Old Testament. Third, if the preaching of the word of God is, I'm quoting this guy again, if the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, then those who hear the word preached should take it as seriously as they would if God were speaking directly to them. He says, our hearers should listen expectantly and soberly and do what God asks them to do. See what he's saying? He's saying, wait a minute, if this if the preaching of the word of God is the word of God to the extent that the preacher is preaching in line with the divine intent, then, then you're, you're dealing with God, okay? You're not just dealing with me. If God's word says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it does say that, and I proclaim it, and I just did, then you're hearing 
It's God. That's what God's saying to you. He said, they should say with Cornelius, and he quotes Acts 10, 33. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. That should be our attitude as we sit under preaching. I want to hear from not jihad, especially not jihad, not Barcellus, blessed Jesus, at thy word, we are gathered all to hear thee. Remember, that's the next line on that hymn. We're going to sing that hymn if I ever finish the sermon. Fourth, uh, by the way, this is fourth of the things we learn. The third thing we learned is that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God to the degree that we did that, and I quoted that guy under three headings. This is a fourth thing we learn. We learn here something about the current work of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. If you're anything like me, uh, when I was a kid, and I was raised Roman Catholic, and I put some of the things together in my brain, I didn't, couldn't put them all together, though. I just thought, he's dead because he's dead, you know, on that thing every week. And then if he wasn't dead, boom, when he did that thing with the bells, which half the time when we were altar boys, you'd fall asleep, and your brother would have to wake you up to ring the bells, or the priest would do this with the host stuff, with the leg outs. <laughs> hey, ring the bell. You know, there's some sort of re-sacrifice, re-killing going on, at least in my thinking, and I just thought to myself, he's dead. And so then, you know, we get Easter, but he's not dead, you know. Uh, he rose from the dead, and, and the language of ascension, and, and he's coming again. And in my mind, okay, maybe he rose from the dead and he's coming again, but between his ascension into heaven and coming again, I don't have to deal with him. He's just mute, passive bystander, you know, son of God incarnate, having, having, having obeyed to the point of death, death even on the cross, was rewarded with resurrection, rewarded with ascension. But we have nothing to do with him between that ascension and his second coming. This philosophy of preaching, he came and preached peace to you, causes us to learn something about the current work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's neither mute nor passive in terms of his present ministry from heaven. Our Lord's current activity in heaven includes extending his prophetic, authoritative ministry through his appointed spokesman. Christ's, uh, Christ speaks to his sheep through his messengers preaching the gospel. I said we're going to hing Sing hymn number 220. I'm going to just read a couple words from it. Um, Blessed Jesus, at thy word, we are gathered all to hear thee. And then, help us by thy spirits pleading, hear the cry thy people raises, hear and bless our prayers and praises. That was a long, wrong line. It should have been this one. With the beams of truth unclouded, thou alone to God canst win us. Thou must work all good within us. So that is a hymn that's also kind of like a prayer from the people of God toward Christ who is in heaven. 
Blessed Jesus, at thy word, we are all gathered to hear thee. Glorious Lord, thyself impart. Light of light from God proceeding. Open thou our ears and heart. Help us by thy Spirit's pleading. So we learn here something about the current work, the current ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, fifthly, we learn here something of the vital necessity and centrality of preaching the word of God. Preaching is the God-ordained means through which our ascended Lord makes the words spoken by men effectual to the souls of the hearer. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord, in the context, it's the Lord Jesus. And the Lord, where is he? This is Acts chapter 16. He already ascended in Acts chapter 1. He is seated in the right hand of majesty on high. And the Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Who's the human instrument? Paul. Who is the divine agent tinkering with a soul? The Lord Jesus. Paul spoke to the ear of Lydia while Christ spoke to the heart of Lydia. This is why Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Why? It's a means through which the ascended Christ speaks to his sheep on the earth, either the ones who have not come uh, or the ones who have already come to him. Sixth, we learn here that we ought to approach the hearing of sermons with the expectation to hear from Christ. And, you know, experientially, many of us know what it's like to have, you know, good content in a sermon and it's scriptural and you leave going, I was filled. And then other time going, Oh my, I didn't want that to end. That's not happening today, obviously. But there are some times when you go, I, I didn't want it to end. Um, why? Because a guy told a lot of jokes. No. Because Christ blessed it and my soul was lifted up. I was reminded of the glorious truths of the gospel and all my sins are forgiven and glory's been won for me and I'm going to attain it to it someday, but not by virtue of my attaining it, by virtue of him already attaining it for me and he confers that glory on me as a gift. I need to give myself away. I wish tomorrow was a Lord's Day. That sermon was so good. Why? Because Christ blessed it. The main attraction is not the minister of Christ. The main attraction of is Christ. When the main attraction becomes the minister, we have idolatry. I don't think that'll happen at our church. I'm not very attractive. Preach Jesus. Sirs, sir, we wish to see Jesus. You remember the Gentiles in the John 12? We wish to see, I told you about somebody throughout history, has it on their podium, has it on their pulpit. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We preach not ourselves, Paul said, but Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. When the minister becomes the main attraction, idolatry takes place. The main event of the worship service is the proclamation of the word of God. But the main attraction is not to be the proclaimer of the word of God. And then lastly, we learn here that it is through the proclamation of the word of God that our ascended Lord Jesus calls his sheep that he came to live and die for to himself. And he came and preached peace to you. He didn't come physically. He came 
spiritually, divinely, executing divine power in the souls of some idolatrous Gentiles and some unbelieving Jews, and he brought them to himself and then to each other in a church, and they started living uh, together. Six years after that uh, event transpired in the souls of many of those people, Paul writes Ephesians, preaching is a means through which our ascended Lord Jesus calls lost sheep to himself. Not only ministers comfort to saved sheep, but lost sheep to himself. The call it comes something like this through the lips of a stammering preacher like me, and it says things like, God has made you, you are required to live up to his moral standards, and you haven't. You are therefore guilty, and so you owe satisfaction to God's God's justice, and you are also not righteous, so you owe satisfaction to God's law. You got a twofold problem. You got a bad record, and you got a bad heart. God has a remedy for your twofold problem. It's a twofold remedy. It is all surrounding the incarnation of the Son of God, assuming our nature to assume our duties and to assume our liabilities. Okay, let me explain that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, assumed our nature. Born under the law, assumed our duties in order that he might redeem us, assumed our liabilities. Because we are guilty, we are liable to punishment. The Lord Jesus took it for us. Because we are not righteous, the Lord Jesus obeyed the law of God for us because we're not righteous. He imputes the benefits of both those uh, elements of satisfaction to our account so that we're utterly forgiven of all of our sins, number one. And number two, we have a righteous standing before God, not by virtue of our righteousness, but by virtue of his and his alone. And through preaching, lost sinners hear that message and the Lord is pleased to save. Well, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray you would bless it to our soul's well-being. Amaze us uh, in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.